Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. everyone, John Wertheim here with this week's Sports Illustrated Tennis Podcast. Hope everyone is well. Our guest this week is Weller Evans. Tennis insiders will recognize Weller's name as a consummate tennis insider. He worked for the ATP Tour for many years. His title was tour manager for the most part, but he also was a fixer, a pragmatist, a counsel, guidance counselor. Um, one of the tour employees who worked with the players week in, week out, was in the locker room and really knows the, the mechanics of tennis and the mechanics of the tour better than anyone. He also briefly served on the ATP Tour board last year and, and part of this year. So uh, this is a, a wide-ranging conversation with a true tennis insider. We talk a bit about uh, tennis in 2020, the rankings. We talk about uh, some war stories from Weller's career, and also a bit about how to get into tennis. Um, there are roles in this sport, even if uh, you, you do not hit a ball at a, at a professional level. And Weller's someone who spent his whole career in tennis and only a few of those as a player. So uh, here's a wide-ranging conversation with a true tennis insider. Here's Weller Evans. First of all, Weller Evans, thank you for, uh, thank you for doing this. I appreciate this. Um, well, John, it's, uh, it's a pleasure. I have to congratulate you in that... Uh, you know, it's got to be quite a coup to get both Jerry Seinfeld and Weller Evans uh, uh, as interviews within uh, a month of one another. Low bar. Just uh, make a few jokes in Yiddish and everyone, everyone goes home happy. No, but uh, we pass up no opportunity to talk tennis. And I, I was saying in the intro, I feel like you are, uh, you are the perfect person to help make some sense of these strange times because you are someone that's always understood the, me the mechanics and have this, this insider perspective and uh, are, are a voice of reason. And I figured, I, I do want to hear a bit about your backstory and some sort of historical questions, but, but help us make sense of tennis in 2020. Um, how, how are you sensing this is going and, and what's your take on sort of gr great tennis in this workaround year? 
Well, I think we're fortunate to be playing tennis at all and uh, to actually have had three of the four slams played this year, I think is a remarkable accomplishment, don't you? Yeah, ab absolutely, especially uh, given the challenges of, of tennis compared to other sports. Um, you know, it's, it's, not, it's not as simple as you, you've got 30 teams and everyone's gonna lock themselves in a bubble. Um, you know, there are two, 256 singles players from all over the world is a, is a big challenge. Um, wh what do you make about the, the rest of it? I mean, we have C Cologne 1 and Cologne 2 this week, which, which sounds like, uh, you know, c competing Hugo Boss uh, fragrance collection. We, we have carryover points. We have Djokovic not playing Paris because he's disincentivized because of the point structure. I mean, what's your take on tennis outside of, outside of the three majors we were able to play? Well, just uh, to sort of focus uh, for a second on the ranking system uh, and what we had to do. And I apologize in advance for referring um, to the ATP as we, but when you work for an organization for 25 years and you stay so closely connected to it, um, it's inevitable that you end up referring to what they do as, as we. But, um, you know, uh, the ranking system had to be addressed once we took such a, a long layoff from tournaments. Um, and you enter uh, that challenge, you know, with the premise that there's not gonna be a perfect system. Heck, uh, probably our current ranking system is not perfect but realizing that um, there's probably not even an optimum way to accomplish all that needs to be accomplished. So it, was a, it really was a challenge for sure. But, um, you know, I think the ATP's priority was always to, you know, try to continue to have a fair and accurate evaluation of, you know, player on court performance which also has credibility with our fans. And I think if you look at the rankings as they currently stand, um, I think the ATP has accomplished, you know, accomplished that goal. Uh, with Roger not being fit enough to play the World Tour Finals, I would like to think that a, a guy who's been really hot since uh, we returned to the courts, Andre Rublev, who actually was, was in Fuego even before the suspension, uh, is going to make the World Tour Finals. I'm sure there are people who, you know, are going to ask why Medvedev uh, is going to be in there when he hasn't really, mm -hmm. you know, duplicated the success that he had last year. Uh, and then, you know, Carino Busta has uh, left... Uh, back into everybody's consciousness and uh, he may or may not make it to London. So I'm sure there'll be people who, um, you know, might question that, but I think on the whole, uh, the ranking system and the rankings that we have currently, even given the, uh, the COVID accommodations that were made uh, resonate with it, with our fans. Um, let's uh, we'll, we'll return to the present in a second, but I, I want to ask you how you, got into this because I feel like there are a lot of people that want to work in tennis and they usually think that means, you know, playing coaching or media. 
and you found a spot that is uh, that, that's none of those three and had a long, healthy career in this sport. How did you get into this, and what do you tell people when they say they want to they work in tennis? Well, John, you and I um, uh, share something that I think is fairly unique, is that we both got our start in this sport by working as locker room attendants. Is that not right? Very good. You remember that. <laughs> So I, um, I was working as the locker room attendant at a uh, pre-U.S. Open event held in New Jersey in the 70s. And um, I ran into the gentleman from the ATP at that time, told him that uh, you know, I was still trying to make it through school, but uh, that uh, if at any point they needed me for anything, I would love to come and work for the organization. And, um, you know, four years later, he found me playing a, a satellite event in Texas, asked me to come by the uh, ATP office. And, um, you know, by the end of the year, I was uh, all set to start as a, a tour manager traveling 44 weeks a year for the ATP. Um, and, you know, I remember you, I think, being in the locker room there in New Haven, was it 1990? 1992, when I, I think Edward beat Peter Korda. Wow, I, I'm dazzled by your memory of this. Um, this was the, the New Haven event um, right before the U, same kind of thing, right before the U.S. Open, 1992. Wow. Okay. So, um, you know, as I said, we both had uh, – similar springboards into the sport and um any the the advice that i give to you know the number of people who approach me and say how can i get involved in professional tennis right uh is one where it's just that i mean if you can certainly find a way to work at a professional event in any capacity chances are you are going to be able to bump into somebody, network with somebody, whether you're the locker room attendant, whether you're a courtesy car driver, whether you're a volunteer working the desk at the, the player hotel, you're going to be able to run into somebody with whom you can network. Now, we know that in uh, this day and age of advanced technology and things like uh, LinkedIn, um, networking is perhaps uh, a little bit easier than it was back when I was trying to get a job with the ATP, which necessitated me, oh, every six months, dropping a postcard to the gentleman that I had met at the South Orange uh, event and reminding him that I was still interested in working for the ATP and how he could find me if, uh, if he needed to. But uh, there's no there's no substitute for that face to face um, mm -hmm. interaction that you can have if you're working at a professional tennis event. So that's that's the uh, advice that I give a lot of the young people that I I come in contact with who who would love to uh, get involved with the sport. Did, did you say 44 weeks on the, 44 weeks of the year you were on the road? Did I hear that right? Yes, uh, initially that's. That's right. I, I came to, uh, to Garland, Texas, uh, the first week in January um, for four days of 
of training, if you will. And then they, uh, on, on Friday of that week, they handed me an air ticket, which was about as thick as a uh, paperback novel, um, which had me starting in Monterey, Mexico um, the next day and finishing up uh, at least that stint of the trip in Paris at uh, the French Open. And so, um, you know, uh, away I went and uh, I traveled in excess of, of 40 weeks a year for, uh, for a few years, uh, which was great. I mean, you're talking to a kid who grew up in New Jersey, who um, idea of exotic travel was crossing the Hudson River and, and going into New York City. So um, to have the opportunity to travel the world on, on somebody else's nickel was uh, a dream come true. I was thinking last week with this Sam Query incident that we can talk about, there, there was reference made to the tour manager. So the position clearly exists. When, when people said, what are you doing all day? How, how do you describe your job? <laughs> well, tour manager uh, is a very, very difficult uh, position to sort of succinctly summarize as far as the job responsibilities because basically it entails dealing with the players from the moment you enter them in the event six weeks before until the time they they pick up their prize money check and and move on to the next event and very often you're moving on to the next event with them so it's a it's a continuous sort of 24 7 um position which has you on site much of the time, uh, dealing with things like the qualifying, pairing up uh, players uh, to, to play the doubles event, preparing the order of play every day for the tournament director and the television people to, um, to consider, taking requests from players as they come into town, uh, entering them in future events and advising them as to perhaps what their schedule should be. So, you know, it can encompass a, a variety of things, John, as you can well imagine, including, uh, unfortunately, a couple times I had to go ahead and, and even bail players out of jail. So, um, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's a, a job that uh, never seems to end. And, and certainly, uh, you don't, uh, punch a time clock. Feel free to uh, feel free to enlighten us a little more with uh, with, with nailing players out of jail. I mean, give us your go. What's your go-to story? Put it that way. What's your uh, your well brother-in-law about your job? What, what's your what, what's your what's your go-to story from the road? Well, if you, you want to focus on just bailing somebody out of jail, again, you have to remember that we didn't always have. Um, ATM machines. And so when I get a call in the middle of the night from a player who had been speeding and then maybe it had a, a few beverages and was hauled downtown um, on sort of a, uh, a DUI charge and needed $200 to get him out of jail, you know, it wasn't that easy to come up with $200 in cash back in those days. So, 
And I may not have had $200 in cash. I may not have $200 in cash even as we speak. But uh, so that required then knocking on a few select doors at the hotel and, and uh, almost taking up a collection for this, uh, this player, which allowed me to go downtown and, and get him out of, uh, out of the lockup and, uh, and back to the player hotel. So that's not my go-to story, but that certainly addresses, uh, you know, what I think you, you wanted to know as far as, um, you know, dealing with players both on and off the clock. I will say um, that probably the biggest mistake I did make in my 25 years of, of working for the tour was keeping Marcelo Rios out of jail. <laughs> um, because he, uh, as you know, in Cincinnati, every player gets a courtesy car. He was uh, at the time um, not old enough to even sign for the car or drive it. So he had his coach sign for it. But um, a couple of days later, he hopped behind the wheel of that car and drove out of the parking lot in Cincinnati, well above the speed limit and almost uh, knocked over a policeman. So naturally they chased after him, brought him back, <laughs> and instead of me letting him spend a night in the in the Mason, Ohio lockup, um, which, you know, might have been a, a good lesson learned for him, I um, I persuaded the uh, the law enforcement uh, officials to almost release him in, in into my recognizance. And uh, and so we kept him out of out of jail that time. And as I said, that may have been the biggest mistake I ever made in my 25 year career. <laughs> I like the uh, I like the image of uh, an underage Marcelo Rios in the, you know, in the, the county jail in southwest Ohio. But, uh, but exactly. I'm, left, I'm left handed. I'm really talented. Um, you, so as long as you brought him up, did you were you part of the, Mar the famous Marcelo Rios Rome incident? Was that on your watch as well? That was not on my watch. Uh, as you know, we had a uh, a longtime tour manager from Italy named Vittorio Selmi. And so I very seldom got to work um, the Rome event. That was uh, his home turf. Gotcha. Um, that's, that's one for, uh, listeners can probably Google that one. Let, let me ask you a serious question. What, what's, what, you work so closely with these players. What strikes you as the difference between the champion, you know, the guys in the top five and everyone else? I mean, what, what differentiates the guys who win majors from the other 95% of the players? I think it's their ability to uh, perform at that very, very high level on a consistent basis. I know that sounds trite, but really that's it. If you look at a guy like Yvonne Lendl, for example, there's a guy who won three events in three consecutive weeks on three different continents. And once he got done with an event, he went on to the next one and he still had the same hunger, desire, competitive instinct to crush you that he had the previous week. And I think, you know, most of us, once we have a good week, 
maybe get to the finals or, or win an event, we kind of breathe a sigh of relief. We kind of relax. We, um, you know, we want to put our feet up and enjoy the moment or whatever. And uh, I think that that's what lends itself to a number of talented players having these sort of peaks and valleys in their career. Whereas the ones that we refer to as uh, the potential goats of the game and the legends are the ones that, um, you know, have that hunger to compete and win every time they walk out on the court. And that's why they're able to do it on a consistent basis. What, what else are we not getting? I mean, the, the fans watching at home or the, the fans who are following these players and watching matches on their phone, I mean, what else are people not understanding about this sport that you grasp being in locker rooms for 25 years? Well, I, I think there's a, uh, a certain tendency on the part of us fans, and I'm going to uh, put myself in that category not only with respect to tennis, but other sports as well. And so I, I speak as a fan of other sports. And I think we have a tendency to romanticize um, the life of a professional athlete. And don't get me wrong. I mean, <laughs> the life of a professional athlete um, is probably better than a guy who sits in traffic right. Monday through Friday, commuting to a job, um, sitting in a cubicle, and then when 5.30 comes, gets back in his car and has to sit in the same traffic to head home. So I will give you that, that the life of a professional athlete um, is better than most other professions. Right. But I think we tend to romanticize um, the life and uh, it really can be quite, uh, quite the grind um, if you're going to do it in the right way, if you're going to be professional, if you're going to dedicate all your energies and efforts into being the best professional tennis player that you can be, um, it's not easy, especially in tennis, which is an individual sport. Everything rests on you. You don't have any teammates to pick you up um, when you're having an off day. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, to travel around the world, to lose, let's say, first round on Monday, or in some cases, even on Saturday in the qualifying, and know that you've got another week in a strange land um, with the only thing to do is to practice and train. Um, you know, it's, it's not easy. It's better than, than most professions, but it's not easy. Who, who's the outlier on that? Um, Curios or say, you know, uh, who's a good example? Diego Schwartzman. I mean, who, who, who's the outlier? The guy who's absolutely maxing out or the guy who's self-admittedly not giving 100%? I mean, how, how many of these guys are leaving, are leaving things out there, leaving things on the table? Does that make sense? I think that, yes, I understand the question. Um, I think the, uh, the outliers are the guys that are extremely talented, like a Nick Kyrgios, and um, who aren't uh, committing 100%. I think the guys these days are more professional than ever. Uh, and I, 
I think that uh, the vast majority of them, while they, they may be doing all the right things and not necessarily giving 100%, but still going through the motions of doing all the right things, I think uh, that describes uh, a handful of guys, but there's really only one Nick Kyrgios, and uh, it drives some of my, my uh, fellow tennis enthusiasts and, uh, and former tennis players crazy when I say that he is must-see television, but I, I really believe that. If I can't be in front of the TV when he's playing, I definitely set my, uh, my DVR. Box office. Um, the, these are, you know, the, these are athletes, like you say, this is an individual sport. There isn't a lot of, there, there are no teammates to blame. I, I always say you can't, you can't shift down to uh, come off the bench or you can't be a DH. Like it's, it's, it's you out there and you win or you lose. And there's not a lot of nuance to that. What were your, I don't know what the word, what, what were your organizing principles for dealing with these players, especially in competition? How, how did you deal with the athletes where there was so much on the line? They were fueled by conflict and you weren't getting them like we were on an off day at a press conference. You were getting them in the heat of conflict. How did you deal with these guys? Well, the first thing you have to do whenever you're involved in any sort of stressful or, or uh, um, situation that involves conflict is you have to maintain your composure because if I'm going to, if I'm going to lose it, then everybody else around me is going to lose it. So I think you have to maintain a, a, a calm demeanor, recognize that these guys are under some stress. Granted, it may be self-imposed, but uh, uh, understand that they're under some stress. It's an individual sport. They really have to rely on just themselves and, and nobody else. And, um, and really cut them cut them some slack in that regard and at the same time make them feel as if their issue or their concern is the most important thing on your plate as the tour manager now <laughs> if you take a broader view towards things you know their concern as to whether they're going to play third match in the day or fourth match in the day seems trivial Right. But to them, it's the most important uh, concern and issue that they have that day. And I think you have to empathize with them and at least make them feel as if you uh, share the significance or importance of, of that with them. Even though, as I said, when you take a step back, look at the broader picture, it, uh, it pales into com in comparison to many of the other things you're dealing with at the event. But make uh, each guy feel as if um, what he's concerned about is near the top of, of your list of concerns. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. 
This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped. Streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. How do you not play favorites? I mean, how do you not say this is someone who's reasonable and I enjoy dealing with them and this is someone who's making my life difficult? Um, in the role that you had for years and years and years, how did you stop yourself from giving preferential treatment to people who probably deserved it? You know, that, that's, uh, <laughs> that's an excellent question. And uh, I'm not sure. Uh, I'm not sure whether I accomplished that successfully or not, although I'd like to think I did. Ask me how I did it. And I think that would require me signing up for uh, a bit of, of therapy and and uh, psychoanalysis. But um, I will tell you, John, that uh, for a number of years, uh, a lot of the American guys that I had grown up with and who were playing on the tour when I was working as tour manager actually felt that their relationship with me, their history with me, um, worked against them because (laughs) um, they felt I was so concerned with making sure that I wasn't giving preferential treatment to individuals, that I might actually go out of my way to shaft them in order to demonstrate to the others uh, that I, I was treating everybody even-handedly. So they used to joke that um, you know being friends with Weller really wasn't an advantage at all. But um, you know, listen, it's human nature to um to you know have emotions and feelings for for certain people so that when you see them coming you invite the fact that you're going to have interaction with them as opposed to others who when you saw them coming you might want to duck around the corner right right um so let me ask you this this i I feel like this whole year and I, i think this is healthy but this whole year has caused a lot of people to sort of assess their business where, wherever they are. I mean, it's, it's true with 60 Minutes and it's true with Sports Illustrated, it's true in tennis. Um, what, what should we do differently? What works, what doesn't work? And, and tennis gets this anytime, you know, tennis gets this always anyway. Um, I'm gonna give you, uh, I'll give you topics. Tell, tell me where you stand and what people might be missing in terms of practical concerns. So when people say, why don't we have regional tours, for example? It, it cuts back on travel. It would mean there are more Americans. It would mean more American events. What's, what's your response to that? I don't think uh, we're there at the moment, but um, if we've discovered anything about uh, the world these days is that, um, you know, just when, you know, 
you think you, you know something or can count on something, it can change in an instant. Um, John, I was in Los Angeles on March 8th when I woke up and watched the start of the LA Marathon. And there were 27,000 people crammed together at the starting line. And I thought to myself, well, gosh, they're running the, the LA Marathon. Everything must be pretty good. I went out, I had a great day in Southern California. I came home that evening, Indian Wells was canceled. Right. Who would have thought? Mm -hmm. So, you know, regional tours at the moment may not be um, the way to go, but gosh, it, here we are, John, um, we are less than two months out from when players, staff, officials would have to start leaving for Australia to play ATP Cup. Mm -hmm. And we don't even know, nor have I, do I think Tennis Australia has secured any sort of exemption for the athletes to the very, very strict 14-day, you know, quarantine period in your hotel room with <laughs> no training, no tennis, nothing. So, you know, unless something breaks on that front, who knows what's going to happen with ATP Cup or even the Australian Open. Right. And so while we've been successful in doing what we've done with the US Open, with you know, the current tour in Europe, um, I have no idea what the future is gonna hold for us. I, you probably know better than I, but I heard that the other day, for example, uh, in Southern California, things had taken a bit of a turn back and that things were getting a little bit. Uh, no, and that's, a, I mean, third wave. When, when we started the French Open, Paris was much better than it was 14 days later. I mean, I think that's what makes all of this so tricky. You say, uh, we should have an indoor event in London and we'll limit fans and it sounds fine, but when rates keep spiking and there's a third wave and everyone's on lockdown, I don't know if we can, get a one week indoor tennis event played at a big arena. Um, well, didn't we just see in the, uh, didn't we just see in Cologne that uh, didn't they start the week with fans and then. Yeah, exactly. And I think, yeah. I think Paris is having fans in the day, but then no night match, no fans for the night matches. And what's the rationale behind that? Um, that's a good question. I, I mean, I think some of this is just, curfew and getting people indoors and we want kids at school we want people to go to work but once the sun goes down get out of the bars and restaurants and go home and don't linger on the street but yeah uh, so it's a, it's it's such an an ever-changing and shifting landscape and it continues to be that um you know regional tours even at the highest professional level the atp tour may be the, the way we have to go um, if things, you know, continue the way they have. I, I definitely think that it's something that we should look at with respect to um, 
the competitive pathway to the ATP Tour, the, the futures and the challengers, um, because there are going to be tremendous challenges associated with uh, running those events, putting those events on, right. um, you know, offering those opportunities to our up-and-coming professional players. So um, in those instances, I think that uh, a regional concept uh, may have to, to happen for quite some time. What about the, um, it, was, it was a hot button topic for a week or so, and then it really seemed to lose momentum. Where, where are you on combining tours? And there's, there's so many organizations and you've got the seven stakeholders and the alphabet soup. Why don't you just make, make it a men's and women's combined tour and why are we duplicating resources and the sport's better off when the two genders compete simultaneously? What's, what's stopping this? Where do you stand on a combined tour? Well, I guess those are two different questions where I stand on it and what's stopping us. I, I think that uh, there certainly is a very, very strong and valid argument to um, combining our efforts, not only with, the WTA tour, but with all of tennis's stakeholders um, in a way that we haven't done in the past. I think it benefits the sport, uh, especially commercially. And I think it's part of a big part of the vision that Andrea Gadenzi, the new chairman of the ATP tour has going forward. I think that, um, you know, when, when he expressed the, uh, some of those ideas earlier this year, I think people immediately assumed, and, and major, maybe Roger Federer can be included as one of those, that he was talking about combining the two tours. Right. I, don't see, I don't see the tours being combined to where we have combined events every week of the year. I just don't see that. Um, but because of economics or history or what's what, why not? Well, <laughs> I think in part because logistically it's it's difficult to find venues that can accommodate both the men and women comfortably. I also think there's a certain mindset uh, within the men's locker room that. Um, is very territorial and that they don't want to necessarily share their events with uh, with the women. And, you know, while Andy Murray certainly doesn't fall into that category, I'm not sure there are enough Andy Murrays in the locker room at the moment. Um, and so I, I think for a few reasons, it's probably not going to happen that we have a, a combined tour where every week of the year uh, men and women play together. But I do think that the men and women can collaborate on so many things off the court to, to make the sport stronger. Where do you see doubles fitting into this? I think right now it's about, I think it's about a fifth. It's like 18% of prize money is, is doubles, I think. Um, should, where do you think that number should be? What's, what's the future of doubles? Well, I think that there are tournament directors who look at the overall prize money, John, 
And when they, they look and see that close to 30% of their total prize money goes to the doubles event and the qualifying event, I'm sure there are some tournament directors who say, why am I spending 30% of my prize money on players who really don't move the needle? Right. Who really don't make an impact. So that's why I had to, I had to chuckle a little bit when I saw, for example, the, you know, the, the PTPA gathering on the grandstand court at the U S open and saw that so many of the guys were double specialists because really it's, it's been the ATP tour and the fact that players have such a voice within the ATP tour that has kept those guys in business and having a job all these years because let me tell you the sentiment of tournament directors is that they don't need the doubles event to the extent that they're forced to have it and so to see those guys then thinking that their <laughs> the grass was greener somewhere else uh, i thought was a bit misguided where, uh, as long as you brought it up, where, where are you with this PTPA? Which, which also, not, not unlike uh, the joint tour, has it was a hot button topic for a week and we haven't heard much from it. Where, where are you on the idea that players need a, a separate union? Yeah, I agree, John. I, I don't know where the movement stands since the tour shifted over to Europe. But, you know, the group that I saw assembled on, on the grandstand court at the US Open last month that I just referenced, it, it lacked the, the critical mass um, that one would have hoped to have had, I think. And, um, and I, I don't think that group uh, would have very much credibility and probably no leverage with, you know, tennis's other entities. Right. Um, so, and I, I also found it a bit insulting, uh, for anybody to equate that gathering with the, the 1988 parking lot press conference. I mean, yeah, why, why that, don't you, yeah, that's good. Why don't you p point out the differences? I think that's important. Well, um, the first 10 years of, of my career, I worked for the ATP when it was a, a players association. And I will tell you that we as players having three votes on a, on a nine member governing body, um, we didn't win many votes. <laughs> we didn't, we didn't make too many gains or advances as you can imagine. And so, um, you know, the, we finally, we, not only the players, but even the tournaments we uh, convinced to go along with us, finally um, decided, look, there's a better way to do this. And um, we each have a, a stake in making the other partner successful. So why don't we break away and form our own tour? 
and uh, the ATP can go from being just a, a noisy players association to having a, a, um, a real presence within the sport. And so that's really what the 1988 parking lot press conference was all about. It was a, a landmark event which initiated real change and it gave you know the players an opportunity to take you know responsibility for equal ownership of the tour and uh and so to equate what happened um with the ptpa assembly at the u.s open with that um especially for me who fought so hard for the creation of the atp tour i found it you know um i found it as i said a bit insulting <laughs> what do you think i mean the it's obviously somewhat more nuanced than this, but basically it's, it's a partnership between players and tournament directors, players and events. There are six board seats, three and three, the players have a council. Does the model work still? I mean, if we always sort of play this game of, Oh, if you could, if you could blow it up today and start all over, it wouldn't look anything like this. Do, do you, do you buy that? I, I think it still works. I do think it uh, at times real, relies on the quality of the individuals that you have involved, both uh, as, as part of ATP management, but also as part of the ATP board. But, um, you know, I'm, I'm convinced that professional tennis players have a much greater voice in their sport than their fellow professionals in almost any other sport. And, and that's thanks to the ATP tour. I mean, when you look at the competition committees of the other leagues, very few of them, if, if any, include players on those committees. Right. That would be, that's unheard of uh, with the ATP tour. And I, I know that there are even colleagues of yours, a tennis channel, um, John, who say time and time again, oh gosh, you know, there needs to be a players association. It's an absolute no brainer. You know, why it hasn't happened is beyond me. Well, you know, there, there are reasons why it, we haven't reverted back to having just a players association, but instead being uh, an equal partner with the ATP tour. And, um, uh, and, and I try to illustrate uh, that by just asking this question. If you went to the executive director of any of the players associations of the four major sports in the US, you know, Major League Baseball, NBA, NFL, or the NHL, and said, hey guys, you can continue to be uh, a players association which collectively bargains every few years with um, your, your league right and and um ultimately if you don't get what you want to get uh your your bullet in the gun is withholding player participation you can continue to to be that uh players association or you can be a 50 50 partner in the league which would you like to be what do you think they would pick? Yeah, I mean, it's 
I'd say it's it's a little apples and oranges, but I, your your point is your point's well taken. Uh, so yeah. So I now having said that, there are certainly places where we play as players, where we're employed as players, where we don't have um, a voice. We don't have uh, a seat at the table. Right. And so I think there is. Uh, a need for some sort of player group to deal with those entities. And, and, and we know those entities are the SLAMs, are the ITF, um, you know, Davis Cup, Olympics. So would it be good to have a seat at the table at, at those uh, events since we're the show at those events? Absolutely. Exactly. And so, is there a need for some player group to push for that and make that happen? Absolutely. But I still feel the ATP can do that. Um, so well, that's, that's my take. Yeah, I mean, you know, my, my experience with, with athletes in general beyond tennis is that it's just about the money. And if you said to the NFL players, tomorrow we're going to start playing with a ball that's a sphere, but everyone's going to – make an extra thousand bucks, they would sign. It's, it's just about the revenue split. It's just about maximizing money and working conditions and, you know, playing conditions and all the ancillary pieces of collective bargaining just takes a huge backseat to, I want to get the most money I can in the shortest amount of time. And it's all about the revenue split. But um, anyway, that's another. Let, let me. All right, so well, let me. That's, John, that's why they. That's why they call them professional athletes. No, and completely rational. And and you're, you know, unlike, uh, you know, Roger Federer might be 39 years old. I mean, some of these sports, the career shelf life is three years, and it's if if you want to add a 17th and 18th game, just pay me for it, and if you want to you know, change the, the, the seating configuration next to the playing surface, just compensate me for it. And everybody just wants to max out, you know, get, get as much, ring as much money out of this as possible. And everything else really takes a backseat to that. But um, anyway, that's, that's well, a, and that's going to be the, quite honestly, um, that's going to be what makes or breaks, um, you know, Andrea Gadenzi implementing his vision for the sport is that, uh, let's face it, it, um, it has to make economic sense. It has to make commercial sense for all that are involved, the players, the tournaments, um, including the slams, although, you know, <laughs> Wimbledon at times uh, doesn't seem to be as bound by um, the commercial concerns as others, but it has to make, economic sense for all the stakeholders both in the short term and the long term right um so let, let me ask you one last question which is this is in as, as cliche as it sounds it doesn't make it less so it is just an extraordinary period we're living in i mean if you said 20 years ago pete sampras would be a a distant fourth on the majors list crazy uh, crazy i mean it's just you know we're 57 majors divvied up among three guys at, at 20, 20, 17. I mean, they're all bunched together. It's just, it's, it's nuts. And a hundred years from now, we'll still be talking about it. Um, but 
nobody's getting any younger. I mean, wh- where's, where's tennis in general and, and the ATP in particular? Where do we go from here? And what, as, as much as everybody enjoys the present, what do you see the future looking like when you don't have three titans, these three superheroes that are, you know, ripping off these feats we'll never see again? When it, when it goes back to guys winning three or four majors and that's a Hall of Fame respectable career and you don't have guys making nine figures in endorsement income and when, when this goes back to tennis, tennis is tennis without these three superheroes. What, what does the sport look like and, and what can the sport do to maximize this sort of new, new landscape? Well, you know, as far as maximizing the new landscape, um, you know, again, I think that's what Andrea is trying to, to look uh, forward and ahead towards. I mean, listen, I'm the tennis guy. Right. Uh, can I explain to you about uh, entertainment platforms or media distribution? No, I'm I'm the tennis guy, but Andrea can and others can, and so I think that's that's where the future of the sport perhaps lies. But I will tell you, John, that and you've been around long enough to know that we've um, we've seen top players and stars of the game um, exit the sport. And we've sort of sounded the alarm bells when that's happened and wrung our hands and wondered where the next uh, Jimmy Connors was gonna come from. Where's the next John McEnroe gonna come from? Then we, you know, we wondered where the next, uh, um, you know, Andre Agassi and Pete Sampras were going to come from. And we're doing the same now with, uh, with Novak and Rafa and Roger. Uh, and you're right. It, what they have accomplished is unprecedented. But, you know, the sport, you and I are passionate about it. It's uh, as great as it is. Can it be tweaked and made a little bit better? Can it be uh, tweaked and made a little bit more... Um, consumer or fan uh, friendly in this uh, day and age of uh, shortened attention spans, uh, certainly. But, um, you know, the sport is, is going to survive and it goes through its peaks and valleys. Um, and we've seen some of the valleys, but we always seem to then, um, you know, enjoy tremendous success. And so I would say that before Roger started to get a foothold in the sport um, and then Rafa came along and then Novak came along, we were probably in one of those periods where we were wringing our hands and, and questioning whether Leighton Hewitt and Pat Rafter and Mark Filipousis and Greg Ruzetsky were going to you know, uh, get us to the promised land. <laughs> right, and, right. And, and so, you know, uh, will we see the big three come again? Uh, probably not. But then again, as you just referenced a couple minutes ago, did we think that once uh, Pete Sampras shot past Roy Emerson and ended up with 14 slam titles that anybody would challenge him, let alone leave him in the dust? No, we didn't. And so, um, you know, 
that's what's great about this sport. Um, this is great. No, I, I, I think I think you're right. And who who knows? Um, you know, who who knows what there, there's some 16 year old kid on an island in Spain right now whose uncle is teaching him uh, unconventional strokes that no one's seen before. This is why we love sports, right? That not, none of this is scripted and nothing surprises us. Um, this is great. This was, uh, I'm, I'm glad we did this. I've been meaning to do this for a while. This has been a crazy year. I suspect they could have used you uh, in the locker room this year more than ever, but I know how close you, uh, you still are to the sport. And uh, well, listen, I, I, you know, I try to stay a little bit relevant. I've, I've been, you know, part of the player operations team at the U.S. Open the last four years. That was certainly a unique experience this year. Let's hope it, it was a unique experience and yeah, that it doesn't right, happen right. again to be in that bubble for uh, five weeks. And, uh, you know, last year I was the tournament director of the Phoenix Challenger. And uh, as you know, I served on an interim basis as one of the three player reps on the ATP tour board. So, you know, however I can help the sport, uh, um, I have a, a fantastic time doing it. Um, no, this is great. I think you're right. If, if a year from now, if, if six months from now, we're back to talking about tennis in full venues without um, temperature checks when you walk in the gates and without figuring out how to reduce prize money because the government's only allowing in a thousand fans, uh, we'll all be in a better place. But No, uh, and guess what, John? We'll also, at least <laughs> human nature, given what it is, uh, we will at least appreciate all of that so much more at least in the short term it it may not last our appreciation right, right. for it may not last but at least initially we will um value uh what we indeed once had exactly yeah someone, someone was saying that about uh, after the you know in, in 1918 you know after the uh, the spanish flu a 100 years ago consumerism and, and theater and, and sports, everyone went out and spent money just because they had, uh, they had a new appreciation for entertainment and uh, how fast it can all go. Um, and, and, right. life, and, and life in general, exactly. just a greater appreciation for everyday life, right. not to get too deep or philosophical. Yeah. <laughs> right. The simple pleasure of going to a sporting event without a mask. Um, this was great. I'm glad we were, uh, glad we did this. And, um, I think people will wait for your book. If, if the Marcelo Rio story is chapter one, uh, keep, keep going. You've got something here. <laughs> John, I appreciate it. I, I hope we can uh, do this again sometime. Absolutely. This was, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll check in soon and uh, we'll see you hopefully sooner rather than later. All right, John, take care. All right, take it easy. Thanks again. Thanks to Weller for the uh, for the wide ranging conversation. Always enjoyed talking to him uh, on the road and someone who, again, uh, a straight shooter who really knows the ins and outs of this sport. And it's someone the, the players have confided in for years, and, and you can see why. Uh, thanks too to Jamie, our trusty producer and co-conspirator. Uh, Jamie, I'll bring you in. Uh, I will bring you in now. I, I don't know if you've ever met uh, Weller Evans, but one of those essential figures that all workspaces and all sectors have that just know where the bodies are buried. They know how things get done. They have institutional memory. They are pragmatic. Um, one of those figures that sort of keeps, keeps the wheels rotating. 
Yeah, it was really interesting to hear him talk about everything. I mean, you guys covered a lot of different topics, you know, from those crazy stories he has to, you know, about bailing people out of jail to how people perceive the quote unquote athlete life and lifestyle and how that, how he had to deal with that and how, you know, the experience he had with that. So I thought there was a lot of different and interesting topics and yeah, his job, um, you know, I think it's funny when you ask, uh, you know, what's your, what's your go-to story? Because I feel like he definitely has one of those jobs where uh, it's hard to explain, but people are really interested once they hear uh, at least his title or the people he interacts with. So definitely an interesting conversation. And as you said, from a, a long time tennis insider. I, I think it would probably mean burning, if not uh, firebombing bridges, but uh, there, there's, there's a great book in there somewhere, just of, of war stories. Um, I mean, the other thing that struck me and strikes me quite frequently is just how tennis, how different tennis is from other sports, especially team sports. And, you know, you, you look at a media guide for a team and it looks like a conventional org chart, like we would have at Sports Illustrated or like any business would have. And tennis doesn't really have that. Um, it, it's not set out like, like a league or a team. But the flip side is I, I think people sometimes underestimate how many people are part of this ecosystem and how, you know, how, how many jobs there are within the sport. And it's not, again, it's not the conventional job of he works in the ticket office and she works in marketing. Um, but there are a lot of these sort of makeshift positions, both, um, both at the tours and at the event level and working for agencies and working for places like Tennis Channel. I get a lot of uh, questions saying, you know, I'd really love to work in tennis. And sometimes those are kids, you know, kids coming out of college, but also a lot of times it's people who, you know, I've, I worked at this cubicle for the last 10 years and what am I doing with my life? I really need to find my passion. I love tennis. How do I work in tennis? And there's no easy answer to that. But one thing I stress is that the, the opportunities are there. And you may have to dig a little, but you may have to even invent your own position. But there is a whole army of people that have found work in this sport. And it's not always, you know, coaches, agents, writers. I mean, sometimes they're, they're obvious positions, but a lot of times they're not. And I suspect some people didn't realize that positions like, like Wellers even exist, but someone's got to be on site for the ATP at every single tournament, sort of making sure there aren't these, these logistical issues. And that was a job that, that Weller had um, for many, many years. And he wasn't the only, he wasn't the only one. Um, let me switch topics on you, Jamie. Speaking of this, this is a, a mild pivot, but uh, one, one of the big stories in town, we can, we can talk also about sort of where tennis is right now in October of 2020 um, after this, but I, I wanted to get your opinion. Did, did you have opinions or strong thoughts on the Sam Query situation? Speaking of tour managers, um, actually got a lot of mail saying, well, why did you write about it in this week's mailbag? I was surprised you didn't have more thoughts about Sam Query. Um, to, to me, I, I don't know, sort of, didn't, didn't seem to be a whole lot to it. But um, I wondered if you had thoughts. This was obviously Sam Query um, testing positive with his wife and, uh, and young son in St. Petersburg and then getting the heck out of there. Did you have uh, strong thoughts on that? Yeah, I will say that it was sort of, as you said, just didn't seem to be much there. It was like a very quiet headline, if there, if there is one. He obviously tested positive and then 
hopped on a, a plane, but I, I will say, I believe it was a, a private jet, right? So they were um, by themselves. And, uh, you know, I think it's a, it's a scary notion to, um, you know, come down with this virus or, or frankly, to be sick, you know, away from home in a different country anywhere. Um, so I think, I know he has a, a young child, um, you know, who, who was just born and everything. So um, it's, it's, a really tough situation for us all to be in. Um, you know, this is something that none of us had ever had to deal with before. There's really no precedent here. Um, so I I think that uh, on my end, um, you know, just reading the headlines and not knowing much more and not, you know, hearing from Sam or making outreach there to just hear that side of the story, it's, it's hard to make any further uh, judgment. But did you have any uh, insight there? Um, yeah, I mean, I think uh, one, one rule is don't, don't take your wife and uh, small child on an international trip during a global pandemic. Um, right. At the same time, you know, we were we were talking about this at, at the French Open. We had to get tested every few days. And, you know, it, it makes you think if, if heaven forbid I test positive here, what's what's my play? Exactly. And essentially it's stay, stay in a hotel for two weeks and uh, get a lot of Uber Eats and you know, watch a lot of Netflix, but it, it's a really unappealing prospect to A, test positive and B, test positive an ocean away from home and your doctors. And I imagine C, the complications of being in Russia and also having your wife and child. I mean, it's, it's understandable right. to see how your first instinct is, I've just got to get the hell out of here. Exactly. Um, it was not a commercial flight, just to be clear. Um, you know, I suspect he would have been intercepted at, at the airport. Uh, and yeah, I mean, the, the ATP is obviously, there was a, a statement that I tweeted out that this could face, uh, you know, a pretty significant ban. I mean, Sam is also thir 33 years old and at the tail end of his career. I, I don't know if, uh, you know, if, if at some level, if, if he faces a significant sort of multi-year suspension, you don't just say the heck with it. I mean, I think we're waiting to see how the ATP comes out here, but I also feel like, boy, um, in this global pandemic with situations changing by the day, I, mean, I, don't, I, don't, I, I don't know if I told well or this uh, when we were recording or not, but when we landed in Paris for the French Open, it was a much different situation and the numbers were much different than when we left 17 days later. So mm -hmm. I, I think, you know, pr probably not advisable to uh, book charter air with your wife and family while you've tested positive and to disregard protocol. And you're also disregarding this protocol. That the, I mean, some of this is just kind of basic civility, but some of this also is you're disregarding the protocol that your own tour has set up. The flip side is it's really scary. It's really fluid. It's changing by the day. A lot of times the protocol is inconsistent, even within the country. It's to me, understandable um why you would take your wife and child and just say i'll deal with the consequences get me the hell out of here so right i definitely think um, the, uh that his his young young child um you know the infant basically um probably had a big role in in the, the decision making here the uh i mean the only the only thing i would add was um after the french open i once i was in the eu i figured i would maximize the trip and i stayed on and, and traveled to another country. And this is so fast moving that nobody knows anything. And you ask one 
you know, one person at the at the gate at the, or at the, at the you know at the, at the boarding counter um, at, at check in what the policy is and they say you need a negative test and the next person says no 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 that isn't being imposed yet it's wildly erratic and wildly inconsistent and you know one person checks one website and the other person checks the other and you need tracing but then you get to the your your flight lands and there's nobody there to actually hand your tracing documents to it's kind of the wild west which i suppose isn't surprising again given how unprecedented and fast moving this is but i also imagine it's very unnerving to be in a foreign country have a positive test and not even get a straight answer and i, I can tell you from experience there're not a lot of straight answers and even even when we were in paris there's supposed to be a ban on bars but then you walk down the street and bars are still open and the fact that everything is being so inconsistently applied i think probably adds to uh to someone's sense of being uh, unnerved and destabilized so anyway i think uh we, we will wait to see how the atp comes down on this but um my my instincts are not the smartest move to take your kid across an ocean in a pandemic but kind of understandable how you would scramble and do whatever you had to do to get out of there and consequences be damned. Um, let me ask you a, a more macro question, which is, uh, you know, we usually the fall is kind of the, we, we call it the silly season. I mean, usually the, the fall is a bit problematic in tennis anyway. We've played the, the last of our four majors and players tend to be a bit banged up, but we have these indoor events um, from an American-centric perspective. They are, they're not in the U.S., and after the U.S. Open, it, it tends to be this sort of anticlimax. There's a little blip, a little sort of throb of excitement for the for the tour finals, and then we have our brief off season. Um, the October French Open is now complete. There are no more majors. Roger Federer is not playing. Serena Williams isn't playing. Naomi Osaka, Ash Barty, and a number of players have just shut it down. Where? What's your level of tennis? I mean, what's your level of interest in uh, sort of t tonally? Where do you think tennis fits for you, Jamie, right now in these? Uh, these last few months of a strange year. Yeah, I mean, I think it, you, you said it right, that this is usually the time where we're sort of winding down. And to be honest, it's also, um, you know, the time when other sports are either ramping up or, you know, we were a little late um, with the World Series this year. So so that's um, also a, a strange thing. So I think it's 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 odd for sure. And I, I think during the French Open, you know, I. Um, was really enjoying in my work from home, uh, you know, remote space to turn on the TV and be able to watch, um, you know, major tennis in the mornings and um, just have that there, you know, whether or not it was odd to be watching the French Open in October or not. But now I definitely um, find myself just kind of not turning on that TV anymore. And, and you know, I, I think I, I said this to you, I, I, just, I definitely should um, be watching some of these smaller tournaments, but I think um, my mind has definitely shifted that this in some way was the last major of the year. And, you know, we are, you know, now into that fall sort of heading into the off season for, for tennis. So, uh, you know, still, Still following along, but I think I'm I'm definitely in that fall state of mind when it comes to to tennis right now. How are you? Um, I don't know, morally, is probably overstating it, but um, how how are you just sort of with with sports in general right now? I mean, I, I feel like the the spring and summer we sort of we're, we're wringing our hands 
talking about, again, tonally is the word I keep coming back to, but are, are we okay with sports and, the, and levity and, and the privilege that comes with sports while thousands of people are dying every day and the world is where it is, or, or are we resigned? Or are we, are we okay with this? Um, where, where are you in terms of uh, your comfort level watching sports in general? Yeah, I think it depends on the sport. It probably depends on the day. I think it's really hard. I think it's easy to forget. And it's easy to just kind of like, you know, sit down, sink into the couch and just, you know, watch, watch what you love and uh, get into it and try and just forget, you know. Um, but there's definitely uh, when we start hearing about positive tests or in sports that may not have um, as uh, secure of bubbles or, um, you know, protocol as others it's you're reminded and it's tough and i think um also just watching sports without fans is is a you know bleak reminder um you know in every other shot on the tv that you know this isn't normal and this isn't you know these are not normal times so it's really hard i think i go back and forth for sure i think during the french open and during the us open in particular with tennis um you know, after talking about it for so long and and worrying about these bubbles for so long, it in and then seeing that you know they were rather successful, um, and we we had the major champs that we you know we said we would. Uh, that made me feel a little bit better in, in terms of tennis, at least. Um, I don't know if you saw the the, the World Series game last night when the fan caught a home run, and uh, it was I mean it was. It, jarring to see a, a fan in the stands having a, having a material role like that. No, I, I think that, I think that's a good, um, uh, I mean, I was, I was surprised how quickly sports seemed quite normal. And I think it's, you know, again, the, the U S open and the USTA and the French Federation deserve a, a lot of credit. There was probably an element of luck in this, but the fact of the matter is there were 256 tennis players in two major events and there was one positive test. Um, the, the fans to me are still a little jarring, but um, anyway, um, let's, uh, let's wrap. I don't, there's not, I mean, you know, I'm sort of looking for news stories. The, the ATP looks like for the, for the first quarter of the event, they're going to reduce prize money at um, 250 and 500 level events as, as you would think, given the uh, reduction of fans, Andy Murray had a physical setback. Uh, the WTA looks to be adding some events uh, they're really scrambling. There are, there are many more ATP events than WT events. Part of that is because this was the China swing for the WTA, and obviously uh, the, the China events were shut down months ago. Um, but playing opportunities uh, are, are sparse and scarce for players. Um, looks like players are going to have to depart for Australia in the middle of December. So the, the offseason, already small to begin with, looks like that window got even uh, smaller. And yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's a, it's a strange time. In, in normal years, we would say that the second half of October is a bit of a strange time, but um, all the more so in, in 2020. Anything, uh, anything else you want to add, Jamie? No, that, that's it. I mean, yeah, I think the, the biggest thing I'm looking, uh, not looking forward to, but just anticipating is the decision-making surrounding uh, the Australian Open, given that as you said, it's it's right around the corner given that quarantine time, and uh, you know it'll be another another major um, to just see how 
things are handled and who plays. And of course, as you mentioned, there are um, some injuries, you know, Roger Federer was expected to be back in 2021, but you just, you just don't know, um, given the, the uh, situations that it would require for their families and travel. And uh, frankly, I, I also think that it might affect some players just training generally, you know, because they're, they do try and take time off, but um, I think it, that's a really hard thing to balance in this time where you might have taken um, time off during, you know, the shutdown, or maybe you just, uh, you know, didn't, didn't train as hard, or, I mean, that whole idea of tapering or preparing for mm -hmm. a big event, I think, has been completely thrown out the window for so many players. And, and for me, that um, training arc and how you um, prepare for a tournament and just prepare for a season, which is, you know, now with tennis so disjointed and, and strange this year, um, is, is going to be interesting as it bleeds into 2021. Um, yeah, I, mean, I think I think we've made. I think you're absolutely right. I think we've made this analogy before, but I, I feel like some at some level, it's, it's like somebody saying, "Well, we're going to have a running race on your market tech go," and you say, "Well, wait a second, is, is this a sprint? Should I, you know, should I really crank? Is this a, is this a marathon? Should I pace myself?" And exactly. nobody really has the answer. And um, even when you're recovering from an injury, you tend to have a timetable. And if I do this within a month, I should be able to do that. And here's when my next checkup is, and, and here's the kind of strength the, the rehab coordinator is hoping to see from my knee. This is just a, a bit of the Wild West. So um, as, as it is right now, it does look like, um, you know, the Australian swing is going to happen. So players know that. They're going to have to quarantine for two weeks. But Tennis Australia looks like they're really bending over backwards to accommodate the players. And then uh, we will see. Um, you know, will will there be an Indian Wells? Well, we sure hope so. They're unlikely to be a full complement of fans, and I think everyone is just going to have to uh, sort of adapt and cling on to any bit of concrete information you can get. So more of the same. Um, all right, Jamie, it is a pleasure. We have um, we have a, a guest lined up for next week. We also have a, an official that would like to talk to us about. Uh, technology and, and replay and, and Hawkeye and Fox 10, but they need clearance from uh, their supervisor. So uh, people have strong thoughts about replay technology, uh, feel, feel free to, to weigh in. Um, thanks everyone for listening. Thanks, Jamie. Keep the guest suggestions coming. Thanks to our guest, Weller Evans. And we will, uh, we will have another podcast next week.